without further ado, we uh, pick it up where we left off last week in uh, chapter uh, 30 of Jeremiah. I came across this uh, poem a few years back and um, kept it. Um, it's about, you know, optimism. Um, and uh, it goes like this. I passed a sandlot yesterday. Some kids were playing ball. I strolled along the third baseline within the fielder's call. Say, what's the score, I asked. He yelled to beat the stuffing. There's no one out, the bases are full, they're winning 42 to nothing. <laughs> You're getting beat, aren't you, my friend? And then in no time flat, he answered, no, sir, not as yet. Our side hasn't been up to bat. <laughs> 42 to nothing. Uh, but he was okay, because they hadn't even been up to bat yet. Um, you know, it reminds me of the 42 years of Jeremiah who uh, uh, has been preaching and he is, you know, totally hitless. Uh, not one person has listened to a word that he said. Uh, and uh, that's, that's kind of Jeremiah's ministry, that's his call. And some might say, what a loser, a prophet that no one listens to. But what's interesting about Jeremiah is he's more quoted by Jesus than any of the other prophets of the Old Testament. And also that his prophecies came true completely. And there's a few that are even futuristic yet still that we, we don't really uh, have yet, you know, that, we, that we'll see actually unfold. Uh, and some of them I think are unfolding right before our eyes. And we've, we've been talking about some of that. But in chapter 30, we come to a, a section uh, of, of Jeremiah that's called the, the, the Book of Consolation. If there was the book of Jeremiah, if there's a book within the book, some would say that chapters 30 uh, all the way through 33 um, uh, are books of consolation, where Jeremiah takes a little more of a conciliatory conciliar, uh, uh, tone or attitude, if, if, uh, if I could say that. Um, so uh, chapters 30 through 33, the books of consolation, uh, some, some would argue this is the high point of Jeremiah. And, and uh, you might agree, if you were with us a, a couple Sundays ago when we looked at you know, the new covenant, Jeremiah chapter 31, we'll, we'll remind you of that tonight. Uh, what an important and huge deal. Now, this section cracks me up. Um, because it's the highest point of Jeremiah, and you might even call it the lightest, uh, you know, not as heavy, because there's so much good in it and so many good bits of news um, that it's a bright spot. But I always find it interesting because the brightest spots sometimes come from the darkest spaces. What do you mean, Brett? Well, consider where Jeremiah is in these chapters of consolation. Jeremiah, as he's writing this in chapters 30, 31, 32, and 33, Jeremiah is sitting in a dungeon, writing these letters, in a prison. Uh, that's where he's writing these. Um, you might call it Jeremiah's prison epistles. Uh, uh, it's like Paul. What's Paul's most joyful book that he wrote in the New Testament? I, I would argue Philippians. He talks about joy and re rejoicing like 18 times in the book of Philippians. <laughs> but what's interesting about that is uh, he writes about joy and rejoicing as he's imprisoned in Rome, about to be beheaded, you know, by Caesar Nero. Uh, and, and what was Paul's most joyful book? The book of Philippians. I love that. 
The reason that's important is the, the godly men of the Bible, and I would say the godly men and women of the Bible, one of the things you see is their joy was not dictated by their circumstances, but their joy was dictated by a person, the person and the work of Jesus Christ. What if Jeremiah didn't live during the time of Christ? But Jeremiah was talking about the new covenant and the mediator of the new covenant is Jesus Christ. The only way the new covenant could even be possible is the Jewish Messiah, Jesus. And so Jeremiah has the joy that he's talking through here in this book from the same source really as Paul the apostle who writes about joy, the source, Jesus Christ. <clears throat> now that might be important for some of you tonight because you know, uh, uh, it's a little discouraging watching people, you know, take over the Capitol building and um, a woman killed as she's trying to climb through a window door of, a, of, a, of one of the rooms in the Capitol building and shot in the neck and dead. Um, you know, you, you say, wow, this is a depressing day for America. Our circumstances might be sort of bleak and dire, um, but that's where we find joy, uh, even in the midst of trial. <coughs> Don't worry, it's not coronavirus. I always, always this time of year, I have this little dry cough that happens. Um, and if you've been around Ethan Creek, you know there's nothing new here. So uh, it's the same old thing. Um, uh, but all that to say, um, true, true story, we have reason to be rejoicing. Even tonight, even on one of the darkest days, maybe as some people are calling it of, you know, American politics and American history maybe where our Capitol building was taken over. And uh, it, the whole thing is kind of a sour, dour, and bummer day. Uh, and, uh, and yet we, why would we be joyful tonight? Because we have the light of Christ and the hope of heaven. And uh, that's what Jeremiah does here. He writes this, this book of consolation, chapters 30 through 33 in the midst of prison. Uh, what a great example for us. Um, by the way, not only was Jeremiah in prison, but worse still, he's, he's imprisoned in Jerusalem that has been under siege for 18 months. Um, do you recall, if, if you remember the prophecy that came by Hananiah, remember Hananiah the prophet we talked about a few weeks ago? He was the dude that said, hey, no sweat in two years, the Babylonians will be gone and we'll be good to go. Well, that, that was his false prophecy. And Jeremiah said, well, we'll see who's right. We'll see if you're a prophet of the Lord or not. Well, this is now seven years after Hananiah stupidly prophesied that for his own prophet, uh, no pun intended, uh, uh, he, he actually just did it for, his, for whatever reason. He had wrong motives, but he wasn't speaking the word of the Lord. Two years, everything's gonna be wonderful. Fast forward seven years now, and Jerusalem's under siege. The Babylonians have surrounded the city for 18 months. They've had nobody leaving or entering the city. Um, starvation and famine is rampant at this point. Um, this is where you hear about uh, even cannibalism for people to survive. Uh, it's a horrible, horrible time. So not only is it one of the worst times in Jerusalem's history, Jeremiah's in the prison of that city that's under that siege. Uh, and it's um, quite dire, the situation. And I find it interesting, that's when he writes this book of consolation, chapters 30, uh, through 33. So let's take a look. Chapter 30, verse one, it says, the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, thus speaketh the word of the Lord of Israel saying, write thee all the words that I have spoken unto thee in a book. 
Now, if you recall in previous chapters where the Lord says, thus saith the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, it would say, now go and speak these words on the temple steps or go speak these words in the outer courtyard of the temple. That's the way it's you know, gone so far. But why is he writing? Well, it's because he's in a dungeon writing this letter now. And he's writing all these words that the Lord told him. And thus we have the book of Jeremiah because Jeremiah wrote these words down. So write these words that I've spoken to thee in a book. Verse three, for lo, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will bring again the captivity of my people, Israel and Judah, saith the Lord, and I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers and they shall possess it. So here they are in the middle of a siege uh, by the Babylonians and Jeremiah is writing, don't worry, we'll be able to come back someday. It's all gonna be good. You know, that's optimism right there. Uh, but that's, that's kind of the tone that this uh, new section of Jeremiah is gonna take. Um, uh, that the Lord is gonna bring the people back to the land. Um, now this is both speaking in that dual fulfillment. We're gonna touch that a few times tonight. Remember I was talking about dual fulfillments or even sometimes triple fulfillments of prophecy. Sometimes when you read the Bible, you'll read these prophecies and you'll think, man, that happened in history. But then the author of the Bible puts it on a level of global uh, concern or issues that relate to global issues. Uh, and you realize, wow, is this something that's yet to happen? And, and some people say, there's people that are confused. Um, my uh, very intelligent preterist uh, brothers, uh, when, when we sit down and talk about end times and stuff, they all believe everything's already happened. It's all been fulfilled. And they really ascribe many prophecies to just former historical events. Uh, it's, and, and then anything that sounds futuristic is, is just some um, you know, metaphor or some figure of speech or some, you know, uh, uh, it's nothing that's literally gonna happen. And, um, and so they ascribe, you know, like the, uh, the uh, for example, the um, abomination of desolation. Some of my preterist buddies will ascribe that either to Antiochus Epiphanes in 167 BC, or they'll ascribe it to AD 70, where uh, Jerusalem was sacked by the Romans. And they'll say that was the end that Jesus was talking about in Matthew 24. The problem that I have with that is um, where in Jeru Jerusalem, we, we see that was total chaos and craziness. And, and you could say, well, Jerusalem did go through a crazy time in AD 70, but it was just Jerusalem at that time. It wasn't the whole world. And when you read Matthew 24, and when the disciples asked, Jesus, when's the end of the world? Tell us about the end of the world. Then they went and talked about that. The rest of Matthew 24, they talk about what the end of the world is gonna look like. And you read global things about the moon and the stars and about nation rising as nation and ethnos against ethnos or ethnicity against ethnicity. And, uh, and, and it's more of a global kind of crisis. Um, and I believe that that's, that's a mistake that people make. They, they say, well, it's already happened. Much of Bible prophecy, you know, about, the Bible doesn't say anything about the future for us. It was all prophecy about times back then, but they might be missing a lot of it just because of the dual nature of prophecy fulfillment. This is one such case here in verse three. The Lord says, I will, you know, scatter the people all over the world, the Jews, and then I will cause them to return into the land and I will give to their fathers, they shall possess it. And this happened. This happened there in 586 BC when Nebuchadnezzar took the people of Israel and took them out and the Jews were scattered largely, but not totally. There was a tiny remnant left 
in Jerusalem during the time of Nebuchadnezzar. AD 70, when the Romans sacked Jerusalem, Titus the general, the Jews were driven out of Jerusalem. And uh, if they saw a Jew, they would kill him. It was a horrible time. And, and that's largely the, what we call the diaspora, when the Jews were scattered for almost 2000 years all over the world. But the Lord, like this prophecy Jeremiah gives, I will scatter them, but I will cause them to return to the land of their fathers, they shall possess it. And sure enough, in the 1700s, when the Jews started to you know, uh, rise back in the Zionist movement under Theodore Herzl and Ben Yehuda and some of these guys that um, you know, were um, you know, bringing Israel back and the language back, um, that all happened and the Jews started making Israel their homeland again. And, and then shockingly, uh, Bible prophecy fulfillment hugely, uh, May 14th, 1948, Israel becomes a nation again, a nation of Jewish people, um, uh, fulfilling Bible prophecy profoundly. Um, and all the preterists should have put away their notes at that point because there's a, a more modern day fulfillment of this regathering of the Jews. It wasn't figurative, it was literal. And I believe wise is the man, wise is the woman who takes Bible prophecy whenever they can, whenever the Bible allows us to, to take it literally. I think that uh, there's a lot of things literally yet to unfold in Bible prophecy. Even though there have been sort of seeming um, layered fulfillments of that or dual fulfillments or tri triple fulfillments. Um, but be that as it may, that's one of them right there, that I will scatter the Jews and regather them. That happened on several times uh, in the world's history. I believe we're watching and seeing with our own eyes the final, the big one, the returning of Jews to Israel and God's plan for Israel. Well, Jeremiah goes on in verse four and he says, and these are the words that the Lord spake concerning Israel and concerning Judah. For thus saith the Lord, we have heard a voice of trembling of fear and not of peace. Ask ye now and see whether a man doth travail with child. Wherefore do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in travail and all the faces are turned into paleness. Alas, for that day is great so that none is like it, even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. We looked at this on Sunday. The time of Jacob's trouble, also called the tribulation period, also called the time of the wrath of the lamb, also called the 70th week of Daniel. Um, I believe this is a very specific time being referred to by Jeremiah that's still in the future when uh, you know Jeremiah uh, is referring to this woman who's in travail with, in childbirth. And we looked at that on Sunday. Now, um, this time of Jacob's trouble, um, it, it reminds me of Daniel. We'll be in Daniel in a few months. Uh, but in Daniel chapter 12, it also talks about this time, uh, you know, and it says what's gonna happen during that time. You know, question, how many arch, arch, archangels are there uh, that the Bible talks about? If you said three, you're correct. And you might say one is Michael, the other is Gabriel. Well, here's the third one. Well, the answer is Lucifer, uh, the archangel. He was also an archangel, only uh, um, fallen, he, sinful, uh, Lucifer, Satan. Um, and this is kind of what's gonna happen during that time. In Daniel chapter 12, verse one, it says, at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince, which stands for the people and the children of the people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that same time. And at that time, thy people shall be delivered, everyone that shall be found written in the book. So Daniel 12, verse one and two is the same thing spoken of 
here where it says Jacob's trouble's coming, uh, but, I, but he shall be saved out of it. Same notion. Um, this isn't anything new in the Bible. The Bible confirms this over and over again. Uh, you know, this verse seven, that God's gonna save the Jews out of that time called Jacob's trouble, the 70th week of Daniel, the time where Michael, the archangel, is gonna stand up and uh, eventually bind Satan himself. Isn't it interesting that Satan is gonna be subdued by Michael? Um, people make a mistake of thinking that God and Satan are, you know, uh, competitive uh, opposites, but they're not. God is God. God created all the other things in the world. Um, and if God wanted to subdue Satan, he could right this moment uh, and make him a vapor uh, instantly. Um, well, why doesn't he then? Uh, the great question, too long of an answer for a good answer, but let me just give you a quick... The, the Bible says you can choose which way you're gonna go, good or evil. And for evil to exist, Satan has to exist. And it's the other option. You can either go with God or you can go with Satan. And that option's gonna be there until Michael stands up and subdues Satan, saves the Jews, Christ comes, rules and reigns, the millennial kingdom. We're gonna have that option of good versus evil until the millennial kingdom. Uh, so it shouldn't shock us when we see the evil that takes place there, like even today in Washington, D.C., and the stuff that's going on in the world in our country. Uh, shouldn't shock us that there's evil in the world because it's still that same choice. But there's coming a time where Christ is gonna rule and reign and it's gonna be subduing all of that evil. It's gonna be great. Four, verse eight, it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off thy neck and will burst thy bonds, and strangers shall no more serve themselves of him. But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up unto them. Um, no, no longer will uh, they enslave Jews and serve themselves up at their expense, is the idea. But the Lord will come and they'll serve him. Uh, and that's gonna be happening. Uh, now, by the way, when it says, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, um, there are some people that believe that David's gonna resurrect and rule uh, David himself, you know, from David and the, and the narrative from 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. But no, the idea is the descendant of David. And there's probably no clearer uh, mention of this than in Luke chapter one, verse 31. You'll remember this. It says in Luke one, verse 31, behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, speaking to Mary, and bring forth a son and call his name Jesus. He shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest. The Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father, David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there shall be no end. He shall reign forever and ever and ever. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Remember that, uh, Handel's Messiah? That's the idea. And so really that's what Jeremiah is talking about when he says they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king. That's Jesus, the son of David, who's gonna rule from Jerusalem. Well, verse 10, therefore fear thou not, O my servant Jacob, saith the Lord, neither be dismayed, O Israel, for lo, I will save thee from afar and thy seed from the land of their captivity. And Jacob shall return and shall be in rest and be quiet and none shall make him afraid. Um, by the way, this has not really happened yet. Some might say, well, Brett, this is when the Jews will come back and resettle Jerusalem during Ezra, Nehemiah, and Zerubbabel after the 70 years of capto, uh, captivity in Babylon. 
But that, that did happen. They did leave Babylon and they did rebuild the walls in Jerusalem. But to say that they have been free and, and restful and quiet and no one makes him afraid, that has yet to happen. That's why we tend to look at this as a multi-tiered, multi-layered prophecy. Jeremiah is saying something that's gonna happen. Israel's gonna exist where no one will make him afraid, Israel. But as it turns out, there's a lot that Israel's afraid of right now and they have right to be. Um, even Iran right now is causing trouble, more trouble. Uh, and the Israelis are gearing up and ready because it's a real threat to the nation Israel and their, and their safety. Um, but there's coming a time where they'll no longer worry. And that's again, the millennial kingdom when Christ rules. Verse 11, for I am the, with thee, saith the Lord, to save thee, though I make a full end of all nations, whether I have scattered thee, yet I will not make a full end of thee, but I will correct thee in measure and I will not leave thee altogether unpunished. Wow, what an interesting verse that is. Um, did you know that there's nations uh, that the Jews scattered themselves amongst? And it says the Lord's gonna make a full end of those nations. What does a full end mean? They will cease to exist. Where did the Jews go after they were scattered, particularly in AD 70? Well, as it turns out, all over the world, but you know, Russia, um, the United States, uh, more Jews in New York uh, than in Israel back in the old days. I remember when I was a kid, there was a day where that number crossed, where there were more Jews in Israel than there were in New York. Um, and that was kind of a big deal for you know, the regathering of Jews. But what did the Lord say about the nations by which he scattered the Jews, where they you know, had to be in exile for you know, almost 2,000 years? It says, the Lord will, uh, will save the Israelites, Jews, though I will make a full end of all the nations where I've scattered you. The United States will come to an end. I believe that. That's what this verse tells us. <coughs> Along with Russia and all these other nations where the Jews were scattered. Isn't that an interesting verse? Well, Brad, I don't know if I like that. Who cares? It's gonna happen. <coughs> the Lord <coughs> is gonna make a full end of the United States. Uh, when is that gonna happen? I have no idea. It could be tomorrow. Uh, watching today's events, hold on. And um, you, kinda, you do kind of wonder, you know, is that, is that something that we're gonna see in our lifetime? And I hope not, I'm a patriot, I love the United States. Um, and, I, and I pray for our, a repentance and a revival in our land. Um, but, but at the same time, I have to be honest, I, do, I don't see the United States lasting forever. As it turns out, Jerusalem and Israel will last forever. It's gonna happen. Uh, there's an everlasting covenant God's made with them. And he's gonna rule and reign from Jerusalem. And what will the United States be at that time? I haven't the foggiest idea, but it'll be under the rule of Jesus Christ. Isn't it interesting, you know, that, that the plan is really this. Right now we're a bunch of nations. Right now there's this massive movement toward globalism. Uh, maybe we'll touch on some of that again on our Prophecy Update this coming Friday. But I have to say, it is, it's astonishing to watch the world feverishly trying to you know, uh, engage in this globalism. Uh, and they're using all kinds of things to move us there, whether it's the pandemic, uh, as it's called, um, or if it's, uh, you, know, the, uh, you know, the global climate change problem that they're talking about. 
Um, there's reasons that they're using to sort of try to get the world to become very global and sort of under the same rule. And the reason that makes us Bible prophecy buffs interested is because the Bible says that's what's gonna happen. There's gonna be a one world government and it's gonna happen immediately before or you know, within a you know, seven year period before the second coming of Christ. I think the rapture of the church will happen first. Then the man of sin, Antichrist is gonna be revealed who's gonna be the world leader for this global community. And he'll have a mark where they'll all be identified as part of that global community. Uh, and, um, and it's just, it's amazing because the, you know, right now to even talk about that, back 20, even 30 years ago, people hear me talk about this and be like, yeah, whatever, that's never gonna happen. But now you can see it. You can see how, man, to be a part of the global community, you'll dutifully get your vaccine and you'll dutifully you know, do your climate change things and you'll dutifully get your mark that'll, that'll maybe contain information that shows that you've been vaccinated and that you uh, are politically sound and you're a good standing person. So you can buy and sell and shop at Costco and do all that stuff. But if you don't have the mark, the Bible says, you will not be able to buy or sell. You won't be able to exist. You'll be like, uh, you know, uh, have to run to the mountains and kind of hide out and try to survive. Good luck with that during the tribulation period. But you can see that all sort of unfolding right now. That's where the world wants to go. There, there's a magnetism toward globalism right now. And, and I see that as just, again, the Lord showing that his word, he knows the beginning from the end. He knows the whole story. Um, so when it comes to this, the Lord says, the nations that you were scattered, they're gonna cease to exist. I will make an end of them. Now, what's interesting for you Bible students, where it says, I will make an end of all nations where I have scattered thee. And by the way, there is a time uh, there uh, in Matthew 25, verses three, um, um, uh, pardon me, 25, verses 31 through 40, that talks about that whole section of the sheep and the goat judgment. What's that all about? Well, it has to do with the nations and how they treated Israel and how they treated the Jews. And there's gonna be a judgment of the nations during that sheep and the goats judgment of Matthew 25, 31 uh, through 40. Um, but that's gonna happen. But the Lord says, I'm gonna make a full end of those nations, but I'm, gonna make, I'm not gonna make a full end of thee. That's what he says in the middle of verse 11, the Jews, Israel. Did you know that five times uh, in the Bible, uh, right, uh, right here is one of them where the Lord says, I will not make an end of Israel. He says it in Jeremiah, uh, I should say five times in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 4.27, it's said there, Jeremiah 5.10, Jeremiah 5.18, Jeremiah 30.11, and Jeremiah 46.29. All of those places say, I will not make an, a full end Oh, they would be judged, they'd be disciplined, they would be beaten by the Babylonians, but he would not make a complete end of them as Jews. He's got a plan and, a, and an everlasting covenant with them. But it is interesting to me that he says, the nations I've scattered you unto, I will make a full end. So if you want to invest in something that's lasting as far as patriotism, uh, you know, I, I recommend patriotism as an American and pray for this nation and pray that we'll have a revival in this country. Um, but I also recommend knowing that your citizenship is primarily the, as a citizen of heaven. And I hope today's activity there in Washington, D.C. and the taking over of the, you know, the Capitol building, I hope that just reminds you, wow, we really are strangers in a strange land. 
that um, this may not just be our home, but our home is in heaven and our citizenship is with the Lord. Uh, well, that's all part of the, the Bible, what the Bible teaches. Well, verse 12, it goes on, for thus saith the Lord, thy bruise is incurable and thy wound is grievous. There's none to plead thy, case, thy cause, that thou mayest be bound up, that thou hast no healing medicines. All thy lovers have forgotten thee. Speaking of the, the, you know, the idols and the false gods that they were worshiping, they'd, they'd forsaken thee or forgotten because they don't have brains. That's why they forgot them. Uh, they seek thee not, for I have wounded thee with the wound of an enemy, with the chastisement of a cruel one, for the multitude of thy iniquity, because thy sins were increased. Why criest thou for thine affliction? Thy sorrow is incurable for the multitude of thine iniquity. Because thy sins were increased, I have done these things unto thee. Therefore, all they that devour thee shall be devoured, and all thine adversaries, every one of them, shall go into a captivity. And they that spoil thee shall be a spoil. And all that prey upon thee, I will give for a prey. For I will restore health unto thee, and I will heal thee of thy wounds, saith the Lord, because they called thee an outcast, saying, this is Zion, whom no man seeketh after. So the Lord uses these nations like Babylon to uh, judge and to discipline the Jews. But he says, the Jews have a, a future, the Babylonians do not. And boy, that came true. That came to pass when the Medes and the Persians came along. The Babylonians were wiped out by the Medes and the Persians. And then after the Medes and the Persians came the Greeks and after the Greeks, the Romans. It's a funny thing how these powerful nations have come and gone, but Israel still remains. Uh, that's an amazing thing. That's a Bible thing. Then uh, verse 18, it says, thus saith the Lord, behold, I will bring again the captivity of Jacob's tents and have mercy on his dwelling places and on the city shall he be builded upon her own heap and the palace shall remain after the manner thereof. Um, pause there, verse 18 is interesting because um, this is true. The word heap there, mark it in your Bible. The Hebrew word for that is tell or as the Hebrew, uh, it's spelled like T-E-L. But uh, the Hebrew people would say tail. Um, and it's a, and it, what is a tell in Israel? Well, it's a heap. It means small hill. But what's interesting about tells, and we don't really have them in America because we're a new country. We're new. We've only been around, you know, as a nation over 200 years, but people really uh, building civilizations only for four or 500 years. So why don't we have tells? Well, we haven't had huge civilizations like in Israel. So when you're driving around Israel, one of the things you'll see are these mountains or these small hills that some of them are the size of the sanctuary, maybe as tall as the sanctuary. You're like, what's that mound there? And it's an ancient civilization. Civilization, civilization built upon civilization. And you go to a place like Megiddo and it's a hill. Uh, in the, and, and you go up and it's got eight layers of civilizations that have been just built one upon, you know, one nation destroys them. So they just kind of smooth out the rubble and build on top of that. And then that destroys, smooth it out, build on top of that. Jerusalem itself was built uh, uh, over and over again after destruction, after destruction. And that's why, and it's hard for us when I bring our tour groups to Jerusalem, it's hard for people to get their brains around this, but it's because we don't have this in America, the civilization built upon civilization for thousands and thousands of years. We don't have that here. 
Um, so when you go to Jerusalem, if you wanna see something that happened during the time of Christ, you've gotta go about 30 or 40 feet below the surface of, of today's strata. You have to dig. And so like there's times if you wanna go see something in Jerusalem that Jesus, like a street that he walked on, you have to go down some stairs and into either a cave or, you know, or something that's been dug out where you can actually see the road that Jesus walked on. Um, it's, it's, the, um, it's the tell, the build of these civilizations. And, um, and so it's, it's interesting. If you wanna go to the time of Solomon, you have to go you know, 40, 50, 60 feet down. Uh, and like when you look at the Western Wailing Wall, for example, you know, the pictures of Jerusalem and the guys, they're praying with their black hats and everything at the Wailing Wall. And you see these, these rocks. If you look at the Wailing Wall, you can Google it right now. If you look at the Wailing Wall, uh, you'll see smaller stones at the top and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Why is that? The stones are older and older and older. But that wall goes even further down from the floor that they're standing on right there at the Wailing Wall. It goes down another 50 or 60 feet. And by the time you get down to the bottom, you get to stones that are size of school buses. Um, they're huge stones and, and um, it's during the time of Solomon. The, the reason that is, is because after destruction, after destruction, they just kept building upon and the, the old wall just got buried uh, and they just kept going up. And so now you can dig, if you dig next to the wall in Jerusalem, most of the wall you see around Jerusalem today is only 500 years old. Uh, during the Ottoman Turk era, when you see the walls of Jerusalem today that look ancient, they're only 500 years old. But if you were to get a shovel, and to dig next, right down from the wall, you'd see stones just getting bigger and bigger. And those stones were built upon other stones. And it goes all the way down to the Solomon era where the stones were giant. And um, that's an amazing thing. Now, why do I talk about that? Well, that's the word tell. Uh, the building upon civilization, it makes a mound. And what does it say here? I will bring again the captivity of Jacob's tents and have mercy upon his dwelling places. And the city shall be builded upon her own heap or tell and the palace shall remain after the manner thereof. Interesting, did you know they're digging the palace of David right now? Um, out of the, uh, you know, if you go to the city of David, in, which is uh, outside of what we would say more uh, modern day Jerusalem, um, uh, or, you know, the old walls of the Ottoman Turk era, you go down the Southern steps and you go down and you end up in the city of David and you, you, they're, they're digging up layer upon layer, the palace of David. It's an amazing, it's one of the most amazing archeological digs I think that have happened in the last decade uh, there in Israel. Um, when I first went to Israel, none of that was dug up, uh, but now I can take you through a tour through the palace of David and stuff like that. It's amazing. Well, that's fulfilling again, prophetically, verse 18 is being fulfilled right before our eyes. It's civilization built upon civilization, tell. Well, verse 19, and out of them shall proceed thanksgiving and the voice of them that make merry and I will multiply them. And they shall not be few. I will also glorify them and they shall not be small. Their children also shall be as aforetime and their congregation shall be established before me and I will punish all that oppress them. And their nobles shall be of themselves and their governor shall proceed from the midst of them and I will cause him to draw near and he shall approach unto me. For who is this that engaged his heart to approach unto me, saith the Lord? Um, and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Interesting verse, verse 21, who's that talking about? Uh, there's debate on this one. And the debate has to do with 
uh, who is the governor that's coming? Um, and I believe it's possible we're talking about Jesus Christ because remember, he's gonna be all three, prophet, priest, and king. Uh, and that's who he is. Uh, and this governor's coming and he does something and there's, there's a part of the Hebrew language we miss here when it says that the, their nobles shall be of themselves and their governor shall proceed from the midst of them and I will cause him to draw near. And that word, we just think, where's it? What's he gonna draw near to? Um, well, that's the phrase there in the Hebrew means um, he's moving into ministry in the temple is the idea there. Drawing near in this context means ministry and worship. And this guy is the governor who's gonna lead people into the temple to do that. And, uh, and then what happens? The Lord, or, uh, their relationship is reconciled you know, they shall be my people and I will be their God. Who is the governor that's gonna make that happen? The restoration of the Israelis to God, that's Jesus, he's the mediator. So some would believe that verse 21 and 22 is referring to uh, Jesus. Um, and, uh, and the Israelis will finally be restored to God, the Father, Jehovah, um, because of the work of the Messiah, Jesus. Verse 23, behold, the whirlwind of the Lord goeth forth with fury, a continuing whirlwind. It shall fall with pain upon the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord shall not return until he hath done it and until he hath performed the intents of his heart. In the latter days, ye shall consider it. Whenever you see that phrase, the latter days, we're talking about the end times. So again, when's the wicked gonna be judged? In the latter days. And I would say around the time of Jacob's trouble. So chapter 30 uh, of Jeremiah um, has several places and points where I believe we're talking about the end times, the tribulation period, and then the millennial kingdom. Chapter 30 of Jeremiah is talking about a glorious time where Christ is gonna come and rule and reign. But the book of consolation continues here in chapter 31. In verse one, it says, at that same time, saith the Lord, uh, will I be the God of all the families of Israel and they shall be my people. Thus saith the Lord, the people which were left of the sword found grace in the wilderness, even Israel, when I went to cause him to rest. The Lord hath appeared of old unto me saying, yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Boy, don't you love this? Uh, this is God speaking through Jeremiah at a time where they were you know, about ready to be destroyed by the Babylonians because of their evil, wicked sinfulness. And yet he puts it on the words of Jeremiah to say this, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. How long is everlasting? It's forever. Um, not, you know, he hasn't forsaken Israel, but I've loved them with an everlasting love, the Lord says. Um, therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Man, what a beautiful statement. I remember we used to sing this when I was a kid. This is a song. Uh, I have loved thee with everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Charles Haddon Spurgeon and a buddy were walking down a dirt road near some farms there in England. And there was a weather vane as the wind was blowing up on top of a barn. And the weather vane had a chicken and an arrow but also in, in the, the steel weather vane, it also said, God is love. And Spurgeon said, what a poor example of God's love. The weather vane is blown by the wind, north or south or east or west. What a horrible example. Well, the friend said, Spurgeon, I disagree. He said, because the, the weather vane is on top 
of it all. <laughs> and I, I thought, you know, that's, that's really good. The, the weather vane is on top and, and that is the love of the Lord. No matter which way the wind's blowing, no matter what you've done or how bad you've been, God's love, it, it, it doesn't change. He's still there no matter what way the wind's blowing. That's kind of the idea there. Well, and that's what the Lord says to the Jews. My love is an everlasting love. Verse four, again, will I build thee and thou shalt be built, O virgin of Israel. Thou shalt again be adorned with thy tabrets and shalt go forth in the dances of them that make merry. Thou shalt yet plant vines upon the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant and shall eat them as common things. Now, this is of course the Lord saying what's gonna happen when they're restored and they're gonna plant vineyards in Samaria. The one thing I just wanna point out is Samaria today, what's Samaria? Some area, what area? Yeah, some area. It's actually a place um, and it's a hilly part of the West Bank in Israel. And the reason I point that out is the West Bank is one of the most contested lands in the world. And the Jews that live there are called occupiers of the West Bank. And the world has a disdain for Jews that live in the West Bank. Uh, all I gotta say is this, the Lord says there's coming a time where the Jews, Samaria is gonna be completely yours because I gave it to you and you're gonna plant your vineyards there. So if you wanna be on the winning side of the argument, don't be one of the dupes that argue that the Jews are occupiers of the West Bank, that the, the Israelis are occupiers. You're not reading your Bible. Uh, the Jews have a right to that land. And by the way, at their peak of power, Solomon had the most amount of land uh, given to Israel. But at their peak, they only possessed one-tenth of the land that God actually promised to them at their peak. So even now, Israel doesn't even know a fraction of what God has promised. When are we gonna see the 100% of the land of Israel uh, occupied by the Jews? That's gonna happen when Christ rules and reigns. And that'll be the end of the discussion of the stupid, you know, who has a right to the West Bank. God said it. The Jews have Samaria and that is a done deal. Uh, if you wanna be on the right side of the argument, go with the Bible. I think that's important. Well, all that to say, verse six, uh, for there shall be a day that the watchman um, upon the mount Ephraim shall cry, arise ye and let us go to Zion unto the Lord our God. For thus saith the Lord, sing with gladness for Jacob and shout among the chief of the nations, publish ye, praise ye and say, O Lord, save thy people, the remnant Israel. Um, who's this watchman? Um, the watchman's gonna y uh, yell out. Interesting word for watchman here. Uh, let's see how you guys do uh, with this one. The, the Hebrew word is netzer <laughs> for watchman. Does anybody remember a word that was like that or related to that? If you recall our studies previous, we talked about the netzer, which was the branch or the root. But as it turns out, it's very similar Hebrew word and it's from the same root word, uh, this watchman who's upon the Mount Ephraim crying out, arise, let us go to Zion for the Lord our God. Um, interesting link to the word Natsar, uh, the root or shoot. And we did a whole study on that, talking about Isaiah 11 verses one through two. We did that a few weeks back. But an interesting word that you should note in who this watchman might be. For verse seven, thus saith the Lord, sing with gladness for Jacob. Shout among the chief nations, publish and praise ye and say, O Lord, save thy people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, verse eight, I will bring them from the north country uh, and gather them from the coasts of the earth 
and with them the blind, the lame, the woman the chi- with child and her that travaileth with child together, a great company shall return uh, thither. That's Israel gathering back to the Holy Land. We're seeing that happen and we have for the last you know, 50, 60 years amazingly. They, verse nine, shall come with weeping and with supplications will I lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of water in a straight way wherein they shall not stumble for I am a father to Israel and Ephraim is my firstborn. Now, this raises an interesting question. Why are we talking about Ephraim? Um, And man, you can read books that are kind of get crazy about this. Some people say Ephraim is the lost tribes of Israel and it's actually the British or, uh, you know, all kinds of theories and stuff. But the, the, the thing is, you have to understand the Hebrew mind and the way they say stuff and the way they think about stuff and, and also understand the biblical narrative. Does anybody remember who was Ephraim? Well, he was called one of the tribes of Israel. So some would assume he was the son of Jacob. But the truth is, do you remember? He was not the son of Jacob. He was actually the grandson of Jacob. Who was Ephraim's father? Anybody? If you said Joseph, you're correct. Now, was Joseph the firstborn of Jacob? No, Reuben was, but Reuben was a loser. Uh, And so Jacob chose Joseph over Reuben as his son um, and really treated him as the firstborn. Isn't it interesting, all the examples in the Bible where God goes against world culture with the firstborn gets everything and uh, everybody else is like left out. Uh, As it turns out, Moses was the younger brother of Aaron but God chose Moses over Aaron. Jacob was the younger brother of Esau, but God chose Jacob over Esau. David was the king crowned, but his, all his brothers were older. He was the youngest, but God chose him over his older brothers. And isn't it interesting that, that um, of the favorite sons was Joseph. Ephraim became an idiom for the Northern 10 tribes or Israel, but it was a favorable term because Jacob loved Joseph. Joseph had his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and they were the favored grandsons, if you would. And remember the tribes that got cursed, like the tribe of Dan, they would oftentimes be left out of the list of tribes. And that's when you'd see the tribe of Ephraim and Manasseh replace the tribes of Joseph and Dan or or things like that. So when you read the 12 tribes of Israel and you think, wait, where's Joseph or where's, Where's Dan or where's, depending on the, the list that, the, that you get, Book of Revelation will throw a curveball at you when you see the tribes of Israel listed and you'll think, wait a minute, we're missing some sons and what's going on? It has to do with the cursed tribes that are left out and then the grandsons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who would eventually replace the cursed tribe uh, and what have you. Don't be confused by that. But all that's to say is when the Bible refers to Ephraim, it's speaking of, the beloved of Israel, of God, and specifically the Northern 10 tribes, uh, speaking of Ephraim there. So it's a, it's a bit uh, confusing to some, but hopefully you realize Ephraim sort of an idiom of the, um, the favored Northern 10 tribes of the Lord. And he calls them their firstborn, even though he wasn't the firstborn, um, but he's preeminent is kind of the idea there. Well, Verse 10, hear the word of the Lord, O O ye nations, and declare it in the isles afar off, and say, he that scattered Israel will gather him and and keep him as a shepherd doth his flock. For the Lord hath redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of him that was stronger than he. Therefore, 
They shall come and sing in the height of Zion and shall flow together to the goodness of the Lord for wheat and for wine, for oil and for the young of the flock and of the herd. And their soul shall be as a watered garden and they shall not sorrow anymore at all. Jeremiah is seeing something here in this vision that is sort of a dream of future events. You know, Martin Luther King said, I have a dream. Well, Jeremiah had a dream true too. And as it turns out for the Jews, there's coming a time where God scatters like sheep, the people of Israel all over the world. But as a good shepherd, he's gonna gather them up. And man, what's gonna happen? They're gonna sing in the height of Zion. Um, the height of Zion speaks of the Temple Mount where they worship the Lord on the Temple Mount. Right now it's uh, trampled down by the Gentiles. The Muslims uh, sort of control the Temple Mount. It's a crazy story, but the Dome of the Rock Shrine is there. The Aqsa Mosque is there and Muslims go there and worship and pray. Um, and if you're a Jew and you go to try to pray or worship on the Temple Mount, you could get killed or stoned to death today by Muslims. Um, but there's coming a day where the Lord's gonna cause the Jew to sing in the height of Zion and flow together to the goodness of the Lord. But all of this is such picturesque, like for wheat and for wine, for oil and for the young for the, of the flock, um, their soul shall be like a watered garden. Does that sound good? A watered garden? full of good fruit is the idea there. And they shall not sorrow anymore at all. This is another song we used to sing when I was a kid. Um, and uh, it's a great vision of what the Lord's gonna do in the millennial kingdom. Again, this has not yet happened because they're, they're, the Jews have not had any uh, lack of sorrow. They've not been able to live in peace and safety and worship the Lord for a long, long time uh, on the Temple Mount in, in Zion. That's gonna happen when Christ comes. Verse 13, then shall the virgin rejoice in the dance, both young men and old together, for I will turn their mourning into joy and I will comfort them and make them rejoice from their sorrow. And I will satiate the soul of the priest with fatness and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, saith the Lord. And thus saith the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping Rahel or Rachel, weeping for her children, refused to be comforted for her children because they were not, uh, they were not or dead. Verse 15 has caused all kinds of confusion and, and uh, scholars uh, argue to this day what it's about. Is it about this, this area called Ramah? Why is there weeping in Ramah? Well, there's a, a legend that has it, and this is option one, that in Ramah, just five kilometers north of Jerusalem, uh, Ramah was a little place where the Babylonians used to process the Jews being taken off into captivity. So if your children were taken by the Babylonians, which they did, they would take them to Ramah, they would sort of process them there and then haul them off to Babylon from Ramah. And so because of that, Rachel, which is an idiom of the women um, uh, the mothers of Jerusalem um, crying and weeping for her children and she was refusing to be comforted because her kids were taken off. Like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those kids were taken by the Babylonians, probably through Ramah and dragged off to Babylon. So that's what that some people say. But here's where we throw the wrench in the works with this verse. In Matthew's gospel, he quotes this verse and puts a context to it that doesn't have anything to do with that. What do you mean? Well, let's go there. Keep your finger here and go with me to Matthew chapter two. Uh, 
The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, verse 18. There is where we read about uh, the same verse quoted by Matthew. Uh, let's, let's back up into verse uh, 16 to give us some context. Matthew 2, 16, it says, Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and all the coast thereof from two years old and under according to the time which he had diligently required, inquired of the wise men. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet saying, in Ramah was there a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and would not be comfort, uh, comforted because they are not. But Herod, when Herod was dead, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph. So remember that whole story of the slaying by Herod the Great of the little boys in Israel. And th this verse from Jeremiah um, uh, 31, 15 is quoted as the fulfillment of that. And again, you say, well, which one is it? Is it the one of Herod or is it the one of the Babylonians? Which one? And the answer is yes. Dual fulfillment of prophecy. This is the way the Bible does things in, in uh, concentric circles and ripple effect of prophecy. And this is one of those cases that you see this often in the Bible. So I would argue that it's both, both speaking of the time of Babylon, but also the time of Herod the Great. Well, verse 16, thus saith the Lord, refrain thy voice from weeping and thine eyes from tears for thy work shall be rewarded, saith the Lord, and they shall come again from the land of the enemy and there is hope in thine end, saith the Lord, that thy children shall come again to their own border. Stop crying, the Lord says, it's gonna be okay. They're gonna come back uh, again someday. Verse 18, I have surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself thus, Thou hast chastised me, and I was chastised as a bullock, unaccustomed to the yoke. Turn thou me, and I shall be turned, for thou art the Lord my God. Surely after that I was turned, I repented. And after that I was instructed, I smote upon my thigh, I was ashamed. Yea, even confounded, because I did bear the reproach of my youth. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? For since I spake against him, I do earnestly remember, and still... Therefore, my bowels or my heart is troubled for him. I will surely have mercy upon him, saith the Lord. Set thee up waymarks, make thee high, step, uh, high heaps. Um, set thine heart toward the highway, even the way which thou wentest. Turn again, O virgin of Israel, turn again to these thy cities. How long will thou go about, O backsliding daughter? For the Lord hath created a new thing and in the earth, a woman shall compass a man. What's this about? He's talking about Ephraim and that they were rebellious and that the Lord was you know, disciplining them. But then all of a sudden this thing about the backsliding, the Lord's gonna do a new thing and a woman shall compass a man. What does that mean? It means that it, in, in sort of strange terms, it means that the woman asked the guy out on a date. In Bible times, in Portland, you're like, yeah, that happens all the time. But in, in Bible times, that would have been unheard of. But that's the idea, you know, the woman courting the man. Um, and this could be applied to Israel or the church uh, in some ways. When uh, Israel was in sin or the church, we have a bridegroom, Jesus Christ, and we get to um, sort of court him in the sense of worship and praise. And as we draw near to him, he draws near to us. Interesting kind of idiom 
that uh, uh, Jeremiah uses about this, the woman uh, compassing the man. Verse 23, thus saith the Lord of, of hosts, the God of Israel, as, as yet shall they use this speech in the land of Judah and in the cities thereof when I shall bring again their captivity. The Lord bless thee, O habitation of justice and mountain of holiness. Now you say, what's this useless speech? Well, this is a long story, but I'm gonna make it short for tonight's purpose. Um, when the Jews were scattered the first time uh, here, they came back and they still spoke uh, Hebrew. They didn't use Babylonian language uh, after that. But after the diaspora uh, of, you know, <coughs> AD 70, the Romans, um, uh, they lost the Hebrew language. Did you know that the Hebrew language became extinct in the world? Nobody was speaking Hebrew. It was almost in that category of um, sort of the, the Latin. You know, nobody speaks Latin really today, you know, old Latin. But um, a lot of our languages borrow from Latin. Um, and so people like to learn Latin for ac academic purposes. That's the way Hebrew was up until the uh, 1700s when Theodore Herzl and the Zionist movement came back to Jerusalem and then a bunch of Jews were living in Jerusalem and it wasn't until a guy named uh, Ben Yehuda. Who? Ben Yehuda? Yeah, Ben Yehuda was a guy who in Jerusalem, um, after Israel is regathering and Jews are starting to fill Jerusalem again, he sits at the dinner table with his family and he says, as of this night, I will no longer speak anything but Hebrew, our native language of this land. And he made his family speak Hebrew from that day forward. And so he and his family talked to the neighbors in Hebrew. And, and the Hebrew language, while extinct, was brought back. Uh, no, that's never happened in history in any other language. Only Hebrew has done that. And if you go to Israel today, everyone speaks Hebrew. Um, if, you join, if you become a Jew living in Israel, you have to join the army and they will speak to you Hebrew until you learn Hebrew. Like that's the part of the way it works is you join the army and you have to learn Hebrew or you won't know what to do. Um, but all that to say, it's again, one of the prophecies of the Bible that I find, who, who doesn't believe the Bible? When the Bible says, I'm gonna scatter the Jews, they're gonna lose their language and then they're gonna become a mighty nation. And then the, the details, like they're no longer gonna speak Hebrew, but I'll bring their language back. Um, by the way, that f real prophecy of that, it's not just here in uh, 31, 23, but Zephaniah 3, 9 kind of speaks of this, where it says that when the Lord would regather, uh, it says, for then I will turn to the people a pure language that they may call upon the name of the Lord to serve him with one consent. Um, that, that scripture in Zephaniah 3, 9 is speaking of the Lord restoring Hebrew to the Jewish people. And he's done that. Check that box. It's an amazing thing. Again, why, don't, why do I believe we're living in the last days? Because so much of this has been fulfilled in my lifetime or in some of your lifetimes where Israel has become a mighty nation. Um, they gathered and some of you are old enough to even remember when Israel became a nation, 1948. That's an amazing thing that that was fulfilled. Israel gathered, they became a world power. All the nations around them hate them, just like the Bible says. Hebrew was brought back. And now they're postured for the Ezekiel 38 invasions. Everything's ready to roll like the end times says. I think there's so much evidence in the Bible that we're living in the end times. But uh, be that as it may, what do we do about that? Keep serving Jesus. Keep being a light in this dark world. Well, all that to say, uh, that's, that's what he's talking about there and using this speech in verse 23. Quickly, verse 24, there shall, 
uh, dwell in Judah itself and in all her cities thereof together, husbandmen or farmers, that they go, uh, that they go forth with flocks. For I have um, satiated the weary soul. I have replenished every sorrowful soul. Upon this I awaked uh, and beheld, and my sleep was sweet to me. So now he wakes up out of this dream that we were reading about, um, verses 10 through 26. Verse 27, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of beast. And it shall come to pass that like as I have watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to throw down, to destroy, to afflict. So will I watch over them to build and to plant, saith the Lord. He's gonna restore them. In those days, verse 29, they shall say no more, the fathers have eaten a sour grape and the children's teeth are set on edge, but everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Every man that eateth the sour grape, his teeth shall be set on edge. By the way, um, uh, Ezekiel says this exact same thing in Ezekiel 18, verses two and three. And this is hard if you don't know the idiom that's being used here. There was a saying in Israel saying, uh, sour grapes, sour grapes. And what, what were you saying that? If you were saying that, you were saying, I'm the way I am because of my parents. And um, we do this today. We, we just don't say sour grapes uh, generally. But the idea is our teeth are tweaked out because our parents' teeth were set on edge or, or tweaked out. That's what this is talking about. Now in Ezekiel, it says, do not say this ever again. Stop saying our um, sour grapes. The soul that sins, it shall die. In other words, you can't blame your parents for your sins. You're gonna be accountable for your sins. If you're an alcoholic, don't say, well, my dad was an alcoholic, so I have the disease of alcohol. No, you have the sin of alcohol. Don't, don't call a, something a disease that the Lord calls actually a sin. I think that's something we have to be careful about. A disease makes me less of a victim or more of a victim and less of a, a sinner. I have the disease of alcohol. And we love to blame our parents. I have an anger problem because my dad had an anger problem or I, I am this because my mother did this, mother, mommy dearest or whatever the thing is, be careful. Um, the Bible tells the Jews here, stop saying that. Sour grapes, our teeth are set on edge because our parents' teeth are set on edge. And the Lord says, nope, the soul that sins, it's gonna die. And praise the Lord, the soul that sins, it's gonna die. But the sinner who's about to die can be saved because of Jesus Christ, the cross. That's why we're so glad about salvation. We'll get into that again in Ezekiel 18 here in a bit. Well, verse 31 uh, through 34, we looked at, it's the new covenant. And we looked at that two Sundays ago. And if you missed that, you gotta pick it up. It's, it's maybe perhaps one of the most important chapters in the, old, the section of the Bible, um, Old and New Testament. It's just huge. The new covenant is huge. Um, there's an old covenant, the law of Moses, sacrifice, Jews keeping laws, and there's a new covenant. We're no longer under the law, but the law was a schoolmaster to drive us to Jesus. And that's a huge thing and answers all kinds of questions. So make sure if you didn't listen to the new covenant teaching I did uh, two Sundays ago, pick that up. And let's quickly finish this chapter. Verse 35, thus saith the Lord, which giveth the sun for a light by day, and the ordinance of the moon and the stars for light by night, which divideth the sea when the waves thereof roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. That's impressive. When you think of God who set the sun and the moon and the waves, and he just did that all by just power, speaking it in. If those ordinances, verse six, depart from before thee, saith the Lord, 
Then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus saith the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, saith the Lord. The Lord is using poetic uh, irony here to say, I'm not gonna forsake Israel. He asked this rhetorical questions. Can you make the sun and the moon just go away? Can you measure the universe? It's interesting because as it turns out, we can't measure the universe. Um, science found out that the universe is constantly expanding and they used tensor calculus to figure out how the uh, universe seems to be unscrolling like a scroll, which I think is hilarious because the Bible says the Lord un unscrolled the universe like a scroll. Uh, the Bible says things that people just think is poetic, but actually it turns out that it's literal. Um, and uh, so the uh, universe is ever expanding and who can measure it? No one, we really don't know the real measurement. And so the Lord says, if you can figure all that stuff out, then I will destroy Israel forever. But the point is you can't and you won't. I'm gonna save Israel. Verse 38, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that the city shall be built um, to the Lord from the tower of Hananiel unto the gate of the corner. And the measuring line shall yet go forth over against it upon the hill Ariv and compass it to Goat. Um, and the whole valley of dead bodies and all the ashes and all the fields of the brook of Kidron unto the corner of the horse gate unto the east shall be holy unto the Lord. It shall not be plucked up or thrown down anymore forever. In the millennium, the Kidron Valley and the horse gate and all that the, uh, will not be bothered. What's the valley of the bodies, dead bodies? That sounds like a bad movie. Easy answer. When you go to Israel and you stand on the Mount of Olives and you look down through the Kidron Valley, the Palm Sunday Road where Jesus rode the donkey, up the other side to the western, or I should say to the east gate, um, that valley is called the Valley of Dead Bodies. Why? Well, if you go to the day, it's really obvious. Tens of thousands of gravestones are there. It's the, the biggest cemetery I've ever seen. It's huge. And there, you know, there's these sarcophagus type boxes with the stones on them. Uh, look up you know, um, the, the view. Whenever you see the view of the Kidron Valley or from you know, the Mount of Olives over to the Temple Mount, what's between there is tens of thousands of graves and it's the Valley of Dead Bodies. But the Lord says, I'm gonna preserve that area and, and it's in the millennial kingdom, none of that's gonna be moved. That's kind of interesting that it's gonna stay the same. All that to say, we've covered a lot of ground here tonight, but it's the, 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 I hope you see the positive tone that Jeremiah takes tonight. He's not just saying, it's all, you're gonna be scattered and destroyed. That's what most of Jeremiah does. You're scattered and destroyed. But Jeremiah 30 and 31 thus far has not only given us the positive, I'm gonna regather my people and I'm gonna rule and reign from Jerusalem, but it also gave us the new covenant um, where we know we're saved by God's grace through faith, through Jesus Christ. Old Testament and New Testament people both saved once by Jesus's work of the cross. And it's a glorious bit of truth. That's why it's called the books of consolation from Jeremiah. Well, we'll continue Lord willing 32 and 33 next week as we continue our study. Let's pray. And Lord, tonight as we close, we, uh, we see the same sort of juxtaposition of Jeremiah um, with his doom and gloom and the, the bummer but with the hope of heaven and eternal life and the kingdom being set up, we too tonight have a somber heart as we see what's happened in our nation 
as we uh, wonder how it's gonna be in the next even few days. But Lord, we, do, we don't put our hope in our, our uh, capital building. We put our hope in the eternal perspective that you're gonna rule and reign from Jerusalem and that you have your plan and your purpose set. And you're gonna raise up nations, but you're also gonna put nations down. So we just wanna go with your flow, go with your plan, give Christians all over the world a peace that would pass understanding as we walk with you and trust you. And this we ask in Jesus' name, amen, amen.